0: السلام عليكم alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Can someone just give me a quick sound check please Let's make sure everyone can hear me Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبة للمتقين ولا عدوانا إلا على الظالمين وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له إله الأولين والآخرين وأشهد أن نبينا محمد عبده ورسوله المصطف الأمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما بعد. so welcome to another lesson of QP and inshallah ta'ala تعالى today we're going to بإذن الله تعالى finish the تفسير of الشمس. So last week we began the final passage or the final few verses of Surah uh, al-Shams and essentially it's the story of the people of Thamud which as we said last week was the nation of the Prophet Salih and we said that the people of Salih were people that were well known in the sense that they were people that the Arabs were familiar with it was a nation and a group of people that the Arabs had some knowledge of concerning their existence and concerning their location within the Arabian peninsula and so on, and so uh, I think we mentioned last week the narration uh, that's mentioned in some of the books of, of hadith that there were four prophets from the Arabs that were sent Hud, and Salih, and Shu'ib, and our Prophet. So these are the four prophets that the Arabs were familiar with. Obviously, the Prophet coming at the end, but the three previous prophets they had heard of them and they were somewhat familiar with their story, and that is why you will find in some of the early Meccan narrations you will find mention made, mention made of the people of Thamud and the people of Aad in particular. And so that's one of the reasons why we said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or some of the scholars said rather that, that Allah Azawajal mentions here the story of the people of Thamud. So after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has taken a number of oaths, and Allah Azawajal has given us a number of attributes related to those oaths, and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us the Jawabul al which we took a couple of weeks ago, And that is speaking about the soul. And that success is connected to the one who purifies their soul. And failure and damnation is connected to the one who doesn't purify their souls, who makes their soul filthy and makes it impure. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then gives us the example of the people of Thamud. Now some of the scholars as we mentioned last week said, it's because the people of Thamud were known the Arabs and so therefore it's a it's a, uh, it, it's, it's uh, an example that, that is closely in the minds of the Arabs or at least something that they are familiar with. Others from amongst them said no, it is the people of Thamud that are mentioned because they are a good example of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala showing a nation that chose not to purify itself, to chose not to make the zkiyat nafs to purify their souls and purify their hearts, instead they chose the other path and so Allah Azza wa wanted to show Quraysh the result of that and what takes place as a consequence of that choice. Uh, and that is possible also. Uh, the people of uh, the, the uh, Ibn qayyim ta'ala, mentions another reason. And that is because the people of Salih والسلام, were given a clear sign. They were given a clear hujjah, a clear sign and evidence from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that they then chose to ignore. Not only did they ignore, but as we will come and now see in the verses that we will take this week, they did harm towards that sign. Of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the miracle that was given to the Prophet Salih alayhi salatu Wa Ibn al-Qayyim تعالى, says that is the reason why the people of Thamud mentioned. Why? Because Ad and the people of Hud, and they're well known, the people of Hud alayhi salatu was salam, the people of Ad. But Hud alayhi salam, his miracle isn't mentioned in the Quran. And we know that every single Prophet that came to their nations, they were given a miracle that their people could see and know that these people or these men that came to them were prophets and messengers of Allah was and so the Prophet sallallahu mentioned this in a hadith uh, مِثْنُ 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 there's never been a prophet of Allah except that he was given a sign by which the people would know that he was a prophet and messenger of Allah that they would believe in and then the Prophet sallallahu said and as for me the sign that I was given was the Qur'an that Allah revealed to me, so I hope to have the most followers from amongst the Prophets on the Day of Judgment. So every Prophet has a sign. But not all of those signs and miracles are mentioned explicitly in the Quran. So for example, there are a number of Prophets of Allah that we don't know the miracle that was given to them. So from amongst them is the people of Ad, Hudh, we don't know the miracle that was given to him in that sense, nor do we know, for example, the miracle that was given to salam, when he went to madian and so therefore, those two Prophets from amongst the Arab Prophets, their sign isn't necessarily known. It's not something which we have a great amount of detail of or its made its mention is made in the Qur'an. Whereas the people of Salih alayhi salam and the nation of Thamud, we know what they were given because Allah mentions it in a number of passages in the Qur'an and it is also going to be repeated here in Surah Al-Shams. So Ibn Ta'ala says that that is possibly another reason and Allah knows best. Either way, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the people of Thamud and he mentions how they rejected their prophet and their messenger Salih alayhi salatu was salam and they did so out of their transgression out of their evil out of their oppression out of their disbelief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ba'atha Allah azza wa jalla as the the other verse that we took last week ba'atha when the worst from amongst them set out right the worst from amongst them the most wicked amongst them rose and we mentioned in the in the um in the hadith that we mentioned last week, that is collected in Sahih Bukhari of Abdullah ibn Zam'a, that the Prophet ﷺ said concerning this man, or describing him, that the man who was chosen and the man who stood up to go and harm the Sheik camel, and that's the sign that Allah gave, that's the miracle that was given to the people of Salih. And I think we mentioned last week that the narration that Ibn Kathir ta'ala, mentions in the beginning and the that when Saleh came to his people and he sat with them and he had a great long discussion with them, they came to the eventual conclusion that, Oh Salih, we're not going to believe in you until you take out and extract from that mountain a she-camel, a naqa that we can see. And so Salih salam asked them, Will you believe if I do so? They said, Yes. He took from them oaths and promises and covenants. And when they gave him those oaths, he turned to Allah in dua and asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bring out the camel and Allah responded by doing so. And so this camel comes out. right? But the camel, as we know, has a very difficult time amongst them. Right? Ibn Kathir ta'ala, mentions in, in these relations in Al-Bidayah and Nihayah, he mentions the, 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 the situation that the camel would come and when it would drink from their watering hole, it would drink so much that it would leave very little for them. So it would come and it would drink and there would be nothing left for those people that day. Some of the narrations say but the people benefited from the camel because they would drink from its milk. And so therefore they still benefited from the camel, even though it was taking their water. And so they would only be able to water, take water and draw water in the evenings once the camel had finished and had its full. But then they come and they complain to Salih a.s. and that's where we have the instruction from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that, they, that the camel would have one day of watering, of drinking and the people will have one day of drinking. For it is one day of drinking, for you is one day of drinking. Right? And this is the qasim. This is the division of the watering hole between the Sheikh and between the people of Thamud the people of Saleh, alayhi salatu The Prophet in this hadith in al-Bukhari is speaking about the position that they come to now when this man who is considered to be the worst from amongst them stands up and he was a man who was who was strong amongst his people someone who had a lot of clout had a lot of position had a lot of power someone that if he spoke the people would listen and someone who people didn't feel that they had the courage to stand up towards or against and the Prophet ﷺ said just like Abu Zama was and Abu Zama was one of the people of the Quraysh right, or the, one of the people of the Arabs that the Arabs knew and he also had some of those characteristics the Name that's given to this man is Qudar ibn Salif, and I think we mentioned this last week, Ibn Kathir, and many others. In fact, if you go to the books of Tafsir, you will find that many of the narrations name this man as being Qudar ibn Salif, and Allah knows best. But he's also known by another description, and that is Uhaymiru Thamud. Uhaymiru Thamud. Uhaymir is the ism Tasgir of the word Ahmar. Ahmar means red. Uhaymir, in the Arabic language, as I think we've mentioned before, they have a way of making something. Um, smaller, right? So you say Jabal is a mountain, Jubail is a small mountain, right? Tifl is a child, Tufail is a small child. And the reason why the Arabs do this, they do this for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons they do this is it is a term of endearment. And that's why you often find amongst the Arabs that they would use these types of words in naming their children, right? So things like Tufail, right? It's a very common name, Umayr, Humaid, all of these are اسماء تصغير. And so it's done in a way to make their children more endearing. That you have a, a small, like it's like a nice thing to see that it's a small child, it's a beloved child and so on. Or sometimes it's done as a, as a means of belittling someone, right? You say it in terms of belittling someone. This man is known, known as Uhaymir Thamud because the word Ahmar is red. But it is said, Ibn Kathir Ta'ala said that he had reddish pigment in his skin. He had a brownish reddish skin. And so because of his reddish skin, and you see there are, even today, Arabs, if you go to certain parts of the Arab world, you will see that they are brown, but they have a reddish tint within their skin. Right? You find this amongst the Arabs. And so the Arabs, when they speak about the colours and they say Ahmar, that this man was a Rajrul Ahmar, or that he was a al-Aswar, he's yellow, he's, he's, he's red. They don't necessarily mean yellow and red in the way that we understand them, like some of the colors maybe in the books behind me you see bright yellow, bright red. No. It means that there's a tint in the skin, there's a slight coloration of the skin that looks lighter or darker and so on, right? And so the Arabs, even when they describe an Arab as being Asfar, as being black, they don't mean that he's black as in someone who's from uh, maybe certain African countries and so on. What they actually mean is that it's extremely dark brown, right? And so it's very common. So to understand the way that the Arabs use this is something which is important. But anyway, Uhaymir Thamud ibn Kathir says that he was of reddish reddish pigment. And so because of this, that tint, he was known as Uhaymir Thamud. Right? The man of Thamud who had this type of tint and coloring in his skin. So this is the man that, that is mentioned. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, now moving on from where we left off last week. Allah azza wa says in verse number 13, أعوذ al من the Messenger of Allah, meaning Salih, Salaam, because he's the Messenger of Allah that is being referred to here, said to them, Leave God's camel to drink. Leave God's camel to drink. And that is the translation of uh, Professor Abdul Hareem. Uh, Mahsir Khan says, But the Messenger of Allah, in brackets, Salih, Salaam, said to them, Be cautious, in brackets, fear the evil end. That is the she-camel of Allah, in brackets, do not harm it and bar it not from having its drink. Mufti Taqi says, the Messenger of God said to them, leave uh, God's camel to drink. Um, Sorry, that's that's, Mufti Taqi says, so the Messenger of Allah said to them, be careful of Allah's she-camel and her right to drink. And in Sahih International, and the Messenger of Allah said to them, do not harm the she-camel of Allah or prevent her her from her drink. So those are like the translations that we have. Essentially, all of them being very similar. Al-Imam At-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, Wa When Allah Azzawajal says that the Messenger of Allah spoke to them, then this is the Prophet Salih A.S. So it is the Prophet Salih A.S. that is saying to them, فَقَالَ لَهُمْ رَسُولُ He said to them, the camel of Allah. Now what does that mean, the camel of Allah and its drink? Because the literal translation would be, that the Messenger of Allah said to them the camel of Allah and his drink, right? Which seems to mean that there is something missing. Right? There's something missing there. To say to someone, for example, the house, right? The camel, the horse, whatever it may be, it means that there's a a word there that's missing, but it is understood in its meaning. And that is why the majority of the scholars of tafsir said that the meaning of the word that is being that is not mentioned, but it is understood, is the one that you find within the uh, within the uh, translations, right, usually in brackets, be cautious, be careful, leave, do not harm. right. All of these are in brackets because there's clearly an understanding of a word that does not mention explicitly. And what is mentioned here and uh, the position that Imam al-Tabri ta'ala he, he, he takes is that the word that is missing here is اِحْذَرُ اِحْذَرُ Beware, be cautious, be careful. اِحْذَرُ right? Be careful of Allah's camel and be careful of its drink. So, meaning, be careful of harming the camel that Allah has given as a sign. And that's why it's attributed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because it's a miracle that Allah gave. Be careful of the she camel of Allah, meaning, be careful of harming the she camel that Allah sent you as a sign. وصقياها, and be careful of preventing it from taking its drink. Be careful of harming it in that way as well. So, don't harm the camel. I don't stop it and prevent it from drinking. right? And so that's because Allah Azza had already commanded beforehand, Imam al-Tabri says, that the camel would have a day of drinking. لَهَا شرب شرب ولكم شرب يوم مَعْلُومٍ It has one day, you have one day. Right? Allah Azza says in, in Surah Al-Qamar بينهم, And tell them, inform them O Salih, that the water that they have amongst them Will be divided between them, meaning divided between the people of Thamud and divided between the Sheikh Right? And that's the position that was chosen by Imam At Tabari Ta'ala. And it's a position that he takes from the statement of Qatada, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, the famous Tabi'i. he says, laha min hadha al-ma. That is referring to the division that Allah Azza wa made of the water between those people. Allah is warning them. What happens usually with these signs of Allah and these miracles is that the people who don't want to believe they have a disease in their heart, they're not really really ready for Iman for whatever reason, those people won't accept even when they see the signs of Allah. And that is a theme that recurs and it's a theme and a pattern that occurs often in the stories of the prophets in the Quran. Whether you look at the story of Nuh, whether you look at the story of Ibrahim, whether you look at the story of Musa, Look at all of those stories, even the stories of our own Prophet How often were the people given clear signs, miracles, things that they couldn't explain away, but they ignored them and they rejected them. Either because they thought that it was some type of magic or they claimed that it was some type of magic and sorcery, or because they considered the man to be crazy or whatever it was, whatever excuse that they made, they did so by refusing to accept those signs of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, which shows that the sign of Allah Azza wa Jalla, these miracles, they are there to establish proof. And so for the people of Iman, it increases them in Iman. And for someone who's sincerely searching for the truth, then it is a sign for them from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But for those people who don't really, or aren't really sincerely searching for the truth, don't really care, aren't really invested in finding guidance, for them it's not necessary that they will see this and that, that it will benefit them. right? And that is why when the Quraysh came, as Allah Azza mentions in the Quran in Surah Al-Isra, when they come and they have all of these demands of the different miracles that they want to see from the Prophet them, And they say, why don't you bring Allah in front of us? Why, don't, why can't we see all the angels? Why don't you have palaces made of rubies and gems and pearls? Why can't you fly in the sky? Why can't you go up to the sky and bring down a book that we can see you physically descend with and we can read? All of those different demands that they have that Allah mentions in three, four verses, demand after demand after demand. Why don't you do this and why don't you do that? And then Allah says at the end of this, Subhana Rabbi, right? كُنْتُ Illa Say to them, Glory be to my Lord, I am only a human and only a messenger. So the Prophets of Allah Azza don't get to decide. But Allah Azza is also showing that those people don't necessarily believe because of those signs that they perhaps see. So the people of Salih alayhi salam have this amazing sign that they've seen. But because they've become uh become upset with the sign and the way that it works because the sign is not only a sign but it is a test as well as we mentioned before so now it's a it's a sign and a test and the test becomes hard for them to bear these are people who aren't used to other people coming and, and drinking from their watering or their people who aren't used to their animals having that much power and influence over them and they were people that Allah Jalla gave to them ability in terms of technology and in terms of the ability to do certain things and so they become extremely upset. And so Allah gives them this warning, right? Or the Prophet gives them this warning. And it is a fair warning because they've been told now, right? They've been told that you have to stay away from this she-camel and you have to not stop it or not interfere with this drinking from the watering hole. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then goes on and he says, But they called him a liar and they hamstrung her they called him a liar and they hamstrung her that's the translation of Professor Abdul Harim Muhsin Khan says then they denied him and they killed it Mufti Taqi but they rejected him and killed her and Sahih International but they denied him and they hamstrung her or they hamstrung her Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says فكذبوه. They rejected him. Who did they reject? They reject Salih alayhi salatu wasalam. How do they reject Salih alayhi salam? By disbelieving, by breaking the oaths and the covenants and the promises that they made to him. That if you come with this sign from Allah that you bring us this miracle that we're demanding from you, then we will surely believe. So they reject him and they deny him on that basis. Then they reject him and deny him because they've been told, don't go and harm the camel. Stay away from the she-camel. Don't do anything to harm the camel. But they will now disbelieve and reject that also by going and harming the camel. How do they harm the camel? They harm it by, Allah says, فَعَقَرُوهَا فَعَقَرُوهَا They hamstrung it. Now, the word in the Arabic language means to hamstring. right? Or hamstring. In in The Arabs have three ways that they normally uh, slaughter or kill an animal. Two of them are well known because even till today they are used in in the um, you know in the way that we slaughter our our livestock, our animals in the time of Eid, for example, or in the time of Eid al Adha when for those people making Hajj when they offer the sacrifice of Hajj. Two of them are well known, and they are the ones that we find in the books of the Sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam when the Prophet is describing how the method of slaughtering should be taken. The first of them is Dabh which means to slaughter, and that slaughtering is usually done with the smaller livestock animals so like sheep and goats and, and lamb and so on and that's essentially where you lie down the animal on its side and you and you strike its jugular vein right you cut its jugular vein that's the first way the second way that you also find in the books of the sunnah that you will find mentioned in the hadith is called nahar right nahar and that's why the uh, the the day of of uh, eid al adha for those people making hajj is called yawm al nahar the day of sacrifice. Nahar in Arabic in the English language we we call it both slaughtering or sacrifice but Nahar is a different type of sacrifice and it's normally done for animals that are taller bigger like camels and what they essentially do and and there's there's uh, different methods of doing this but what they essentially do is they will tie the leg of the camel one of the legs of the camel they will tie it with rope and then as they will pull its leg the man will come or the person who's coming to do the slaughtering he will come and he will pierce the bottom of the neck of the camel. So camels are big, right? And their necks are very long, right? Their necks are long. And the bottom part of the camel's neck, that is where the slaughtering takes place. Why? Because the camel's very tall. To get it to lie down on its ground is extremely difficult because it's a strong animal and it's big and it's very difficult to do. So therefore to reach the top of its uh, neck also is extremely difficult to do. So Nahar is when they basically come and they, they, uh, they take it or they slaughter it from the lower part of its neck. That is called Nahar. So you have dabh and you have Nahar. And that's why you will often find when the scholars speak about Dhabh, you know, they're speaking about cows, they're speaking about sheep, they're speaking about goats and so on. And then when they're speaking about camels and similar animals, they start to speak about Nahar. The third type of, of uh, way of killing the animal is called akar, right? And that's essentially to hamstring. What is hamstring? Hamstring is basically to take out the, the muscles at the back of the thighs so from behind the animal where the animal has his two front legs his two hind legs his two rear legs you come to the back of those rear legs and you essentially take out the muscles at towards the top of those legs right behind from the rear and that what essentially that does is it stops the animal from being able to move you've taken out your, your the hamstring muscles the tendons and so essentially the animal can no longer move it has now become unable to move right now clearly when we're slaughtering that's not allowed you don't slaughter in that manner that's not a slaughtering manner because it is a form of punishment and when it comes to sacrifice and slaughter we've been commanded not to punish the animal or to torture the animal or to inflict unnecessary pain upon the animal but this wording here shows to you therefore that these people when they came to take that animal and to kill it they didn't do so in a calm way or in a nice way or it was done out of rage and anger and it was done in a, in a sense of disbelief and rejection of the commands of the Prophet Salih, which clearly are therefore the commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So they kill it in this way. Right? Allah azza wa says that in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this also in Surah Al-Qamr. Well, Allah azza wa mentions that they called their friend, or they called the man who would actually come and hamstring the animal, and he did so. Now the hamstring doesn't kill the animal straight away. Others came then and obviously finished off the animal. But Allah Azzawajal begins with this to show you the method in which it was killed. right? The, the manner that was used and employed in order to kill this animal. Because this is their severe rejection of the signs of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. It is said in the books of, of history, uh, like such as the one that's mentioned by Ibn, uh, Ibn Kathir ta'ala, in Al-Bidayah and Nihayah, There are different narrations as to exactly what happened, but one of them says that there were two women. Two women. One of them had recently been divorced from a man who accepted Islam, meaning he accepted the message of Salih alayhi salatu wasalam. He became a believer. So she left him. And so she wanted to marry another cousin of hers or a cousin of hers. And so she said to him that I will marry you, but my dowry will be for you to go and kill the she That's what I want in return you want my hand in marriage this is what I want from you and at the same time there was another woman it is said in the same narration uh, in al-bidayah wa-nihaya there was another woman and this woman had four daughters and she is the one who approached Qudar ibn Salif Qudar ibn Salif as we said the Prophet spoke about him as being one of the leaders and noblemen of his tribe and so the people of Thamud is from their nobility and she said to him that you can choose any of my four daughters for marriage she was an old woman You can choose any of my four daughters for marriage so long as you go and kill the she-camel. That now makes two of them, right? Qudari ibn Salif and this other man whose name I forget, but it's mentioned in the narration, he's also named. The two of them then go to the rest of their people and they ask for other volunteers, for other people to come and help. And I think we mentioned last week how this is very similar in the way that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam before the migration to Medina, when the Quraysh came and they made this plan that A man from each of the different families of Quraysh would come together and they would all go and assassinate the Prophet. So, therefore, no blame could be placed on a single family or a single clan from amongst the people of Quraysh, but rather it would be blood money that is shared, right? The blood that has to be shared amongst all of them because the family of the Prophet can't find all of Quraysh. They can fight one family and they can demand others that they help because it's a pressure that was committed, but if everyone's guilty, then one family can't stand up against the whole of the tribe. So this was very much the same type of thinking. And that's why Allah Azza mentions that these or Allah subhanahu ta'ala mentions that there were nine of them. So in the narration it is said that the two of them meant they asked for the helpers, seven of the people stood up to volunteer. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, And in that city there was there were nine people, a group of nine who only committed evil upon the earth and they did no good. So these people, the nine, are the ones who will essentially go, right? But Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, when He speaks about this in the Quran, He speaks about it uh, about this in in this particular narration. He says, He mentions it in the plural. They rejected their messenger and they killed, right? They killed or they hamstrung the camel, and it's mentioned in the the plural here, even though it is. Qudar ibn Salif who struck the first blow and he's the one who starts the whole thing according to those narrations and obviously it goes without saying that we don't have any snads right? these are authentic narrations in the sense that we have to have an snad all the way back to the people of Salih these are stories and historical narrations and the scholars have always been more lenient and easy going because there's no major thing of our religion that's based upon those narrations so you don't need to for example there's no ibadah, there's no worship that's being based there's no issue of aqidah or belief or theology that's being based on this it is simply narrating a story we have the general uh, message from the quran and the general outline of the story And that's what we need to understand and focus on. But to have the other background detail, even if those narrations may be weak or they may not necessarily be authentic or they're just, uh, you know, Judeo Christian traditions or whatever they may be, it is fine to narrate. And that's why you find that the books of hadith and the books of seerah and the books of history and the books of tafsir are replete with such narrations, which shows you that that is the methodology of the scholars of old. You go to the oldest books of tafsir and the oldest books of of hadith, uh, of seerah and of tariq like Seerat Ibn Hisham and Ibn Ishaq, and the old books of tafsir, like Al-Tabari and others, you will find, uh, Ibn Abi Hatim and Abdul Razak, you will find narrations like this, concerning this. And so therefore, it's, it's a mistake to say no, but they're not authentic narrations. To narrate them, just simply to narrate them, doesn't really make a, a, a or oh, there's no harm in doing so. And Allah Azzawajal knows best. But anyway, the point being here, that the, uh, the Allah Jalla describes them in the plural, because all of them took, Part, right? All of them took part in the sense that they encouraged, right? They motivated, they were happy, they were part of it. And that shows that all of them, even though it may be only one that has taken the action, but if everyone has taken a part in helping or encouraging or at least even even just sitting there happily and allowing it to happen, then they share a part of that responsibility. And that is a principle that we know in our Sharia, right? That's a principle that is firmly established in our Sharia. So if you, for example, have a person who's doing the good, but you're supporting that person, you're helping them, even though you may be behind the scenes, inshallah, you get a share of that reward. And the opposite is also true. If a person is doing evil and harm and you're allowing them and you're not stopping them and you have the ability to do so, and you're not taking any them by the hand and so on, then that is also a part of your sin that you also share with them in, right? Even to the extent that you find the hadith in the hadith where the Prophet was making his farewell hajj and he came across a group of companions who one of them had gone and he wasn't in the state of Ihram, he had gone and he had, he, had, he had hunted. Hunted and caught an animal and he came back and he wanted to cook and feed it to the other companions, many of whom were in Ihram. And so was the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ said to, them, said to him, did any of these companions help you? Did they point to the animal and say, go and slaughter it? Did they take any part in the process? He said, no. So then the Prophet ﷺ said, okay, it's a halal for them to consume which shows that that's a principle even, for example, in Hajj, right? Hunting doesn't just mean that you're the physical one to hunt. It means you don't take any part in that hunting in the state of Ihram. To point to the animal, to help, to help someone, even give, and the narration even says that he asked the companion who was, who was the hunt, the one hunting, asked one of the companions in Ihram to pass him his spear or to pass him his bow and arrows, whatever it was that he was using. I don't remember the exact narration now. I think it was his spear, and the companion refused. Didn't even go that far as to even hand him, his weapon that he would go and use to hunt. And so that's because you have a collective responsibility. And so that's something that you find on a number of occasions that the Sharia also, also affirms. This is the same thing here in the story of the people of Salih alayhi salatu Salam, The people of Thamud, Allah azza wa attributes the blame to all of them. فَكَذَّبُوهُ All of them are attributed this blame because all of them were part of this. And so it was these two men, Qudari ibn Salif and the other man who the other woman had proposed to, and then the seven that made up the group of nine that would go and they would actually do the the the, the action of killing. And it said that Qudari ibn Salif is the one who came and hamstrung the camel, and then the others came and they finished off the camel with its blows. There are even some that say that the camel had a a child camel, a, I don't know the correct term for a baby camel if it's a calf or whatever it may be, but the, the child camel, the baby camel, that they also wanted to go for it. Some narrations say that it went back into the mountain. Other narrations say that it went to the top of the mountain and it, and it, uh, it, it called out three times. Whatever it may be, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la knows best. But clearly, this is something which, which, uh, which is mentioned in some of the narrations of tafsir It's one of the, uh, the statements of Al-Hassan al-Basri, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, and Allah Azzajan knows best. Either way, it's not mentioned explicitly in the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't mention explicitly in the Qur'an that the camel has a child. It is said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in, uh, in other parts in the Qur'an, Allah azza wa then says that once this killing had taken place of the she camel, Salih salam said to his people, fi thalatha As is mentioned in the, in the verse in Surah Hud, he said to his people, Enjoy yourselves for three days meaning that you will have respite of three days and then your punishment will be fallen. Some narrations, and again, these are not authentic narrations of the Prophet but it's mentioned in some of the narrations in Al-Bidayah and Nihayah and other than that in the books of history. It is said that on the first day, the people came out and they were happy because they felt that they had got rid of the camel and, and whatever else. And as the Sun set, Saleh said to them, your first day is over. The next day they came and they weren't so happy, they were perturbed and disturbed. And when the sun set, Salih said to them that your second day is over. And the third day they came out and they were extremely upset. They were their faces were dark and they were not in a very happy disposition. And so Salih said to them, when the sun set on that third day, your third day, your last day is over. And it said that on the fourth day in the morning after sunrise, that is when the when the punishment of Allah came to them. What is the punishment that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent upon them? Allah wa then continues in verse number 14 and he says, rabbuhum Their Lord destroyed them for their crime and leveled them. That's the translation of uh, Abdul Harim. Muhsin Khan says, So their Lord, Lord destroyed them because of their sin and made them equal in destruction. Meaning all grades of people rich and poor, strong and weak, etc. Mufti Taqi says, so their Lord sent eradicating torment upon them because of their sin and made it equal for all. And in Sahih International, so their, Lord, so, so their Lord brought down upon them destruction for their sin and made it equal upon all of them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that he destroyed these people. And the word that is used to describe this is the word damdama. دم damdama. دم and Imam al-Shawkani rahimahullah ta'ala and also in al-Sihah and Ibn al-Arabi and many others from amongst the scholars of tafsir and the scholars of the Arabic language and Gharib al-Qur'an, the peculiar words that you find or the the unfamiliar words of the Qur'an, all of them say that the word damdama essentially is a type of destruction that completely overcomes, completely eradicates. And they say that the word damdama means atbaqa and atbaqa essentially means that you press down upon something and you cover it, right? So you normally say, for example, when you bury something that you may you التراب, that you leveled it with, with 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 sand or with dust or with with uh, with soil or whatever it may be that you're burying it, right? So when you bury and you bury, you essentially cover the whole thing, and you press it down, right? It's soil upon soil upon soil or sand upon sand upon sand, and it is extremely level, right? You can actually make it so that it is more or less level or just slightly above. Uh, earth level or, or ground level. That is the type of meaning that it is the word of damdama and it essentially means a overcoming, eradicating, completely annihilating type of destruction. and That is what Allah says that happened to these people. ash uh, says The reality of the word damdama is that punishment came upon them, that it was multiplied over them, and that it was repeated upon them until they were completely destroyed. And in al he says, The, 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 the word essentially means that you've made it level to the earth. Right? And that's the description that, that Allah Azzawajal gives when he says, Fasawwaha, right? Fasawwaha, That he leveled them in the reading of ibn al-zubayr which is not one of the mutawatir readings it's not one of the well-known qiraat no one reads with this narration with this recitation anymore but it is the reading of the companion abdullah ibn zubayr radiyallahu that that is to say dama, with a ha instead of a meme in the middle fadahdama from the word hadama, and hadama also means to completely destroy, and that's why we understand, therefore, from that reading and those readings, even though they're not read anymore in terms of it being Quran, but they're often used in tafsir to understand words, words of the Quran. So, that understanding of the word hadama, which essentially means to destroy something, then allows us to also understand the meaning of the word damdama. For damdama, that Allah says that they were completely leveled and they were completely destroyed. One of the interesting things that you will find Ibn Ibn Taymiyyah ta'ala, and Ibn Al-Qayyim they say that the people of, of Thamud, and we know from Allah Azza wa Jalla in the Quran that he says the manner in which they were destroyed, right? that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent to them a sayha. A sayha is essentially a single blast, right? a single blast of punishment. And so they were destroyed by that single blast. And Allah Azzawajal mentions it in Surah Fusslet and he says, hun," a single blast of a humiliating torment. And Ibn Kathir ta'ala, says essentially what it was, was a blast from the sky and a severe tremendous shaking of the earth that caused them all to pass away. That caused them all to die and it seems that they were leveled, meaning that they were buried within the earth and Allah Azzawajal knows best. Ibn Taymiyyah makes an interesting point and he says that from all of the punishments that we have of those people of the past nations, this is the one that is given the least detail, the people of Salih salam are the ones that are given the least detail, Thamud. And he says that it may therefore be that from all of them and all of them were destroyed, the people of Ad and the people of Nuh and the people of, of Musa and the people of Madian and the people of Lot, All of these people are, are destroyed, including the people of Thamud. But it seems that the people of Thamud had the least of all of those punishments of the people before them. And Ibn Taymiyyah says, and the reason for that may be, and Allah knows best, is because when Allah mentions the people of Thamud in the Quran, other than their shirk, and obviously it is the shirk that causes them to be destroyed. But usually the other nations have shirk and they have another major sin that they're compete that they performing at the same time, that they're committing at the same time. And there is that combination that not only brings them destruction, but it brings them destruction in a, in a in a different sense. So, for example, the people of Huda والسلام, Allah Azza mentions that they were people of extreme arrogance and haughtiness and pride. And they said, Man ashaddu minna who is more stronger and more mightier than us. And so Allah Azza wa Jal destroys them and He describes their punishment because it is akin to that haughtiness in addition to the disbelief that they had. Obviously, the people of Lut والسلام, we you know that the sins that they were engaged in. And so Allah Azza wa Jal not only destroys them, but He destroys them in such a way that he causes the earth to turn over on them and the, 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 the stones that come from the heavens and so on because not only do they have shirk but they have another major sin that they've committed. The people of salam are people who not only have shirk but they're people who cheat people in their business dealings, in their buying and their sinning. And so this, their punishment also is not only for their shirk but also for a major sin. The people of Thamud, however, right, despite uh, what Allah mentions concerning them and, 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 and what we have in terms of their shirk, which is clearly the biggest and major issue, but we don't have another sin. So in the story of Thamud Ali, uh, the, the people of Thamud, we don't have an additional sin. We don't have an additional sin that is mentioned. Unless we say that the additional sin is the fact that they killed the she-camel. It Right? In, is in fact that they killed the she-camel. But I thought that was an interesting point that Ibn Taymiyyah mentions. And he mentions that based upon the fact that Allah وجل, doesn't go into the detail concerning the way that they were destroyed and punished in the same way that he does in the stories of those other nations and other prophets that were sent to them, those other nations of, of those prophets uh, of Allah that we find in the Quran. And that may be Allah Jalla knows best for the reason that Ibn Taymiyyah mentions. And that's because the destruction of these people is described in a very vague term. bilhun A blast of a a, uh, a humiliating punishment or is known as a sayhatan wahida Then they were like the uh, the the fence posts right that's all that's left they're like they're literally like like you know rotting wood that's kind of the description that is given to them and then in this surah in surah al-shams Allah Azzawajal describes them in a different way and he says فَسَوَاهَا فَدَمْدَمَ عَلَيْهِمْ رَبُّهُمْ بِذَنْبِهِمْ فَسَوَاهَا it is even mentioned in some narrations and and, and it's mentioned, mentioned in the Mustad of Imam Ahmad and the narration is mentioned as when the the, the Prophet sallallahu wasallam said that when the the destruction or the punishment came to the people of Thamud, it destroyed all of them, obviously except for the believers. It destroyed all of the people of Thamud. And one of the people of Thamud happened to be at the time in Mecca, happened to be in the Haram, and his name is even mentioned by name. He's known as Abu Righal. He's at the time in Mecca. So the punishment didn't befall him until he left the Haram. So once he left the sanctuary of the Haram, then the punishment came and it struck him as well. So he happened not to be at that time where the people of Thamud resided. And this also goes to show the point that we were mentioning last week, that the people of Thamud were Arabs and they were familiar with the Arabian Peninsula and so on and so forth. And the fact that this man is going to Mecca and he's going to the Haram and is from the people of Thamud also shows some uh, point towards that. Allah Azzawajal knows best. But anyway, it is said that he was in the Haram and then when he left, that is when he was destroyed, and Allah Azzawajal knows best. But anyway, the point of this being that they were completely destroyed. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala describes it, and He says, "Fasawaha." Right, "Fasawaha." Uh, the meaning of "sawaha" is that they were leveled, and there are two ways to understand that. Two ways to understand, that. and you will find that in the translations that we read a few uh, a few minutes ago. The first way to understand that is that all of them were destroyed. All of them were destroyed without any exception. The old, the young, the rich, the poor, the leaders, the led, everyone from amongst them was destroyed. For Sawaha that it equaled all of them, meaning that it came upon all of them equally. That is the word of Sawah. Taswiya means to make something level. Right? And that can be used in a literal sense. So you you know you level the earth, you level the ground, or it means that you do it in a different way, right? That they are all equal, all of them are level, meaning in terms of their, you know, in the way that they're affected, in terms of the way that it approaches all of them. And so some of the scholars took that position that the meaning of the word sawaha is that it encompassed all of them to show that none of them were exempt from this. And Qatada mentioned something similar, right? He mentioned something similar in one of his narrations. He says, دم دم it is mentioned, Qatah said, we heard in a narration that the Himir of Thamud who is this man Qudar, he refused to hamstring the camel the she camel until the young and the old and the males and the females, all of them supported him. And that is when he went forth and he did so, and that is why because that is why Allah destroyed all of them. So the meaning of the word for sawwah, it means that it came upon all of them equally. The second meaning is that no, they were literally leveled in terms of destruction. And that is the position I think of Ibn Kathir ta'ala, and others, that the meaning is that they were essentially, no trace was left of them that they were destroyed in such a way as if they were leveled into the earth. And Allah Azza wa Jalla knows best for fassawwaha, that they were leveled in that way into the earth. right? And that's also a position that you will find amongst some of the scholars of of tafsir, and that's why you find that discrepancy also or that difference or variation in the translations right so for example you have Abdul Halim saying that they deviled them and you have the other three translators that we refer to Mahsin Khan, Mufti Taqi and Sahih International saying that it made it equal made it equal meaning upon all of them right? made it equal for all and both of them have as we said their position in terms of tafsir. both of them are positions that you will find in the books of tafsir. In the final verse, in verse number 15, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now concludes the surah and he says "Wala يَخَافُ uqabaha." He did not hesitate to punish them. And again that's the translation of Professor Abdul Halim. Uh, Muhsin Khan says And he, Allah, feared not the consequences thereof. And Mufti Taqi says And he has no fear of its consequence. And Sahih International And he does not fear the consequence thereof. Right. And So pretty much all of them exactly the same. In this reading of this verse where we say yakhafu" the at the beginning that is the reading of the majority of the 10 qurra. but the reading of Nafi' and Ibn Amir and Abu Ja'far so 3 of the 10 they read it with a fa Fala Fala The fa means that it is something which is done immediately al taqib. It means that they were that they were that it is something which is done immediately, meaning that Allah immediately did not hesitate to punish them. Meaning that as soon as they did what they did, when their destruction came upon them, Allah did not fear any consequence thereof. essentially means that Allah جل, or that, that the consequence of their punishment wasn't something which factored in terms of its fear. There are three positions as to who it's referring to. Right? Who is it that's that isn't fearing the consequence of this punishment. The first of it, or the first of those positions, is that it's referring to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That Allah punishes and He doesn't fear the consequence of punishing His creation that deserve that punishment. Meaning no one can stand before Allah, no one can stop Allah Azza wa Jal, no one can harm Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, no one can take retribution from Allah Azza Wajal. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has no fear of any consequence. Meaning that when a person deserves punishment, Allah punishes them. And Allah Azza Wajal has no cause to fear that there will be some harm that comes to him Subhanahu wa ta'ala, because he is all-powerful and he is the creator Subhanahu wa ta'ana. That's the first position The second position among some of the scholars of Tafsir, is that actually who's been referred to and this is a statement of Al-Suddi and I think of Dhahaq and others they said that the one that doesn't fear the punishment is actually uh, is actually the Uhaymir Thamun the man himself so when he went and he hamstrung the camel, he killed it because of his disbelief, he didn't think that anything would harm him. Didn't think that anything would happen to him. Right? Didn't think that they would that there would be anything that would come to him. And so that's the second position among scholars, some of the scholars of tafsir. So the one that's being referred to here, the first position is that it's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, doesn't fear the consequence of punishing his creation. The second position is that it's referring to uh, the man who hamstrings the camel that he didn't fear punishment from Allah because he didn't believe in it, he rejected it. And so when he hamstrung the camel, he thought that there would be no consequence, but obviously he was destroyed and punished by Allah And the third position that is mentioned by some of the scholars also, such as Al-Mawardi and others, is that it's referring to the Prophet himself, Salih And that Salih when he gave the warning that if you hamstring the camel, or you harm the camel, you will be punished and destroyed, he had no fear from his people meaning that it, that there would be any blowback or that there would be any consequence from him or that he didn't worry about them being destroyed meaning that if they had gone that far in their disbelief then he didn't worry him that about that they would be that they would end up in destruction and the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala of those three positions the majority of the scholars of tafsir take the position that is referring to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that was the position that's referred to as being the position of ibn abbas radiyallahu anhu man al-hasan al-qatada that is referring to Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la. It's a position that was chosen and supported by Ibn Qayyim and his student Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala, and amongst many others from amongst the scholars with Tafsir. They chose the position that the, the context of the verses and the way that they're being mentioned and the manner in which Allah Azzawajal is relaying this seems to show that it is referring to Allah because it is referring to His power and it's referring to His ability وتعالى, that when someone doesn't purify their soul or their heart and they turn away from Allah and they reject and they disbelieve that this is the outcome and so because it is Allah referring to His power and His ability وتعالى, therefore it is more fitting that it is referring to Allah not fearing the consequence of any punishment that He chooses to cast upon His creation or some of his creation. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in in the in, in another passage of the Qur'an when he speaks about the people of Thamud, Allah azzawajal ends that passage and he says, Fatawalla Anhum that Salih salam turned away after they had been punished. fatawalla anhum He turned away from them مَقَالَ يَا قَوْمِي لَقَدْ أَبْلَغْتُكُمْ رِسَالَةَ رَبِّي وَنَصَحْتُ لَكُمْ O my people, indeed I conveyed the message of my Lord to you and I advised you. And he's speaking to his people after they have already been destroyed and punished. And it's very similar, it reminded me, and it's mentioned also by some of this tafsir, al it reminded me of when the Prophet ﷺ spoke to the dead on the battle of Badr. So the dead mushrikeen, the Quraysh, his enemies, when they were dead and they had been thrown and cast into the walls of Badr, uh, the Prophet ﷺ said to them that we have indeed found the promise that Allah made to us to be true. So have you two found the promise of Allah to be true? And in seven narrations, Umar says, O Messenger of Allah, how can you speak to corpses? How can you speak to the dead? They're rotting. How can you speak to them? And the Prophet said, O Umar, you do not hear me any better than they do. Meaning that just as you hear me very clearly, they also hear what I have said to them very clearly. And it is very similar to the way that Saleh speaks to his people or laments them after they have been destroyed. That he said to them that i came to you with these warnings and i came to you with this message and that is a very good way to end our uh, tafsir of this surah because allah Subh'anaHu wa Ta-A'la is saying that you have been given the message you have been given the warning allah Azza wa has made very plier, clear and plain to you what is needed from me and you in order to purify our and our hearts and so therefore the decision essentially comes back to us and that is why the prophet mentioned in the hadith al qudsi that allah Subh'anaHu wa Ta-A'la says to the children of adam when he says to us directly إِنَّمَا هِيَ أُحْسِيهَا لَكُمْ ثُمَّ أُوَفِّيكُمْ إِيَّاهَا Indeed your actions are yours, Allah says I only record them and then I will give you their just judgment or their just recompense فَمَنْ وَجَدَ خَيْرًا فَلْيَحْمَدِ So if you find good then praise Allah and Whosoever finds other than that then let them not blame anyone except themselves And with that we come to the end of the tafsir of Surah Al-Shams and inshallah ta'ala next week we will then begin with the tafsir of a new surah which is Surah Al-Balad If there's any questions that anyone has inshallah ta'ala we can take a couple of questions Uh, if not then inshallah we will conclude for today Okay, Sumeru says, Wala Why is the single feminine pronoun used here to mean them? Uh, let me look at the translation. And Allah Azza fear not the consequences thereof. So the word because of the word adab, I think Allah Azza knows best because the word adab, the punishment is used as being something which is Uh, non-intelligent and anything which is non-intelligent in the Arabic language often it is then referred to in terms of pronoun in terms of the feminine and Allah knows best So, if there's no more questions, then inshallah ta'ala, we will conclude for today. Barakallahu fiqum. Musallahu anabi muhammad wa alihi wa ajma'in. alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.